If you have a Bible with you, open it to John 1 with me, if you would. As you're doing that, we are going to actually go to a different gospel and think about something for just a second. And that gospel is Matthew 16. As we have a very interesting story in Matthew 16 that will kind of launch us into our discussion today. Uh, a story that is there in Matthew, which is not actually recorded in John for various and sundry reasons. John records something a slightly different, but nevertheless, in Matthew 16, Jesus has gotten a fairly large amount of people following him. He's generated a lot of buzz, if that was a thing back then. And so eventually he turns to his disciples and he asks this very important question. Right around the place of Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Particularly looking toward himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? It's a loaded question. The first question was probably in reference to Jesus, and you'll notice that the disciples are not fools. So when the big man asks you, uh, what do people say about me? You don't lead with all the bad stuff. Uh, no doubt people did think that Jesus was all that they said. One of the prophets, Jeremiah, Elijah, even John the Baptist, those are all good things. But plenty of people also would have thought that Jesus was a liar, that he was a lunatic, that he was possessed by the devil, that he was a blasphemer. We know this from the gospel itself, but you'll notice the disciples conveniently leave those things out and they just tell him the good things. And so he looks at them and he says, well, that's fine, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, well, who do you think that I am? And Peter, who is this apostle who is known as having a foot-shaped mouth, he, just, he can't help but say the wrong thing at the wrong time, says the perfect thing at the perfect time. And he confesses. He says, you are the Christ. You're the one that we have waited for. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus heaps praise upon him. As a matter of fact, in the Gospels, there is no place where Jesus ever says anything to anyone quite like what he says to Peter here. And we are prone as Protestants to minimize what he says to Peter, but we ought not do that. He says, on you, I will build my church. The name Peter is nothing but sort of a play on words for the name rock. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. On the, what Paul would say is the foundation of the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, God will build his church. On Peter, who is the head and representative of all the apostles, he will indeed build his church. Peter is heaped with praise here. And why so? Because he was able to open up his mouth and he was able to confess rightly confess that Jesus is the Christ. And this is the same confession that we are to put forward today. If we were to ask, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You can't get much better than the answer that Jesus said he will build the entirety of the church on, right? Let's not try to improve on anything. But the question becomes, not what are we supposed to confess? That stuff's easy. You're supposed to confess that Jesus is the Christ. The problem becomes in trying to define what it is that we're actually confessing. When you say that Jesus is the Christ, 
What does that confession actually mean? Is the fact that Jesus is Messiah, or as we commonly think of it, as Christ, simply a name? So even as we talked about last week, you were to believe in the name. Is it just a name that we kind of tack on, that we believe in the Christ, and the Christ is Jesus, and Jesus is the Christ, because that's what his name is, Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that Jesus is, is divine. It doesn't mean that he has the Godhead in him. Is that what the implication is? Is that what we mean when we say, you were to confess that Jesus is the Christ? That doesn't mean that you are confessing that Jesus is God. Does it simply indicate that Jesus is king? That he is the one who reigns over all of his people? And certainly it has implications of that. Is that what it means? Does it mean that, that Jesus has come to save his people? Is that what calling him Christ means? So when we say that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the question that we are to ask ourselves is not, are we supposed to confess that? But more importantly, what are we actually confessing when we confess that? And so the time that we have today, we are going to be spending on four, four very small words in the book of John. Those four words come from the beginning of verse 14. If you throw in and, which I will gladly do, there will be five words, if that makes you feel better. So in verse 14, we read, and the word became flesh. Simply that, the word became flesh. What does it mean for the word to become flesh? What does it mean for us to confess that Jesus is the Christ? What kind of things are we talking about when we talk about Jesus in the incarnation? So today we're going to be talking and working through something that we call Christology. Much like we did for the Trinity all the way up in John chapter 1 verse 1, we are going to do the same thing today but for Christology. One of the first major theological crises to strike the church was how to think about the Trinity. Was given what the Bible, specifically a book like John, says about the Word or the light or the sun, how are we supposed to arrange our thoughts about who God is now in the New Testament because the New Testament seems to muddy the water great, a great deal compared to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was very easy. God is God. Who is God? He is the one who is above the heavens. He is the one who sits enthroned by the cherubim. He is the one God and there is no other. But now we have the Word being God and the Word being with God. And so we had to think through how we, how we talk about the Trinity, how we are to think about the, the Trinity. Quickly, they came up with an answer, quickly being a couple of centuries. So that the word, this word that is talked about here in the beginning of John was fully God. The only Son of God begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And it was important that they thought through the Trinity because before they could get to how God and humanity would come together in Christ, they had to figure out who this God was. And then once the church figured that out with two councils, the council at Nicaea in 325 and Constantinople in 381, the church had to start turning its attention and almost immediately turned its attention to how we then talk about Christ. What do we mean when we confess the word became flesh? And so now, having talked about that, just like the church, we've talked about John 1.1, we've talked about the Trinity, and now we can use that discussion to start talking about Christology. Christology is just like biology. Theology simply means it's the study of, and bio is for bios, it means life. And so it's a study of life. And so Christology is nothing more than just the study of what Christ is, the study of who he is. 
So again, today we're going to focus on those four small words. The word became flesh. As we do so, it's important to go back and to think through something of the Trinity because we do kind of need to fill this in. Okay, so there's two main words that we're going to have to define very clearly so that you guys can understand kind of where we're coming from. The first is the word nature. Okay, sometimes we'll use the word essence or sometimes we'll use the word substance to talk about this. When, when theologians use the word nature or essence or substance, they mean the thing, whatever that thing happens to be, the thing that makes you what you are. So all of us in here are humans. Okay, I don't think that there's any dogs. There's probably a couple of flies or something like that. But the rest of us are humans. And so we have what we would call the essence of humanity. Whatever that happens to be, whatever it is that makes you human, you have that thing. And we're not going to talk about what it is that makes you human because it doesn't actually matter. But whatever it is that makes you human, you have that. Okay? That means that you're not a dog. You're not a banana. You're not a rock. You're not an air conditioner. You're not a set of drums. You are a person. You have something distinct about you that makes you human. That is your nature. Okay? So no matter how well human beings might craft robots to talk and act and function like humans, we would say that they would still lack something of the nature of humans so that they couldn't ever actually be human. They don't have the essence of what it is to be a human. Now, when we talked about the Trinity, there is a distinction. We need to make this very clear between how we are all humans and how God is God. So our nature as humans can be multiplied. That's why there are many of us in here. Right? So I have the essence of a human sometimes. Sometimes I kind of have the essence of a dog. But nevertheless, I have an essence of a human. And I am yet at the same time distinct from each of you who also have the essence of a human. So you can have multiple essences of humanity in multiple places. But God never functions like that. The essence of God is indivisible. He is one and only one. A place where this is emphasized is something like Isaiah 45, verses 20 through 23. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. There is no God beside me. In other words, just like in Deuteronomy 6, when the people of Israel were to confess, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. God cannot be divided up. There cannot be multiple instances of who God is. So God's essence, his nature, his substance is one. Whatever makes God God, there is one of those things. But we also need to talk about nature and essence. The second part of this is person or subsistence. So, person is the way we normally talk about that. And person simply refers to how God relates to himself. How is it that God relates to himself? It's not so much about who God is, which is essence, but how God is. 
Not so much who God is, but how God is. How does God relate to himself? How does God relate to us? And we know that he relates to us as three people, Father, Son, and the Spirit. Because they are distinct from one another, we can say that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and neither of those two are the Spirit, and the Spirit isn't either of those two. So they are distinct people within the Godhead, yet because the Godhead cannot be separated out, they share one essence together. So there is essence, what the thing is, what makes it what it is, and person, how it relates to others. And this is important because as we begin to talk about the heretical positions, we're going to see that there is confusion about this when it comes to Christology. Now, I want to say before we begin looking at these things, that because we've already talked about the Trinity and because the church had already nailed down the Trinity, Trinitarianism is assumed. And as we go through this, you're going to see that each and every one of these heresies automatically assumed that the word here was God. And that as he came to the world, he was fully God. There was no doubt that this being was God who was with us. So this is completely the opposite of a more liberal heresy, which would say, well, Jesus wasn't really God. We know that that can't happen. He was, he was simply a man and he was a good moral teacher. We know that that's not true. All of these people would have gladly affirmed that Jesus is indeed the son of the living God. So let me be very clear. At the front end, it was not enough in the church simply to affirm that Jesus is God. It was not enough. So if you want to make that sort of your baseline for what is good and versus what is bad, the early church says you are, you are lost. That's not the baseline. There's more than that. So the first thing we're going to talk about also as we go through this, you'll notice those big words that are put on the side there. Those are typically names. Docetism isn't a name. It's a, it's a thought pattern. But the rest of them are names. You don't have to worry about those. You can ignore them. It's the idea, the concept that is behind the name that actually matters. So the first heretical position we're going to talk about is that Jesus seems only to, only seems, excuse me, to be physical. Jesus only seems to be physical. And we call that docetism. It comes from the Greek word, which means to seem. And so early in the church, very, very early in the church, people would look at something like, and the word became flesh. And, and there was a bit of embarrassment because the philosophy of the time was that immaterial things were good and material things were bad. And so it was, it was a horrible idea to take God who is higher than all things and who is spirit, who is perfection in his immateriality and make him material. To have him actually take on flesh was an embarrassment. And so many teachers didn't want to have anything to do with that. And so they would say, well, yeah, Jesus walked the earth and he talked with people and he healed people, but it was, it was just an appearance. He, he had a body, but it was like a phantom. He was, he was fooling everybody. And so this is why we call it docetism. It comes from the Greek word of seem. This becomes something that's probably very, very early in the church, and we realize that because John already seems to be battling this, not only in his gospel, but in his epistles. Unlike the other problems that we pull out of his works, this seems to be something that he has to battle directly. So in John 20, 27 and 28, when Thomas has that great confession, right? Jesus is resurrected from the dead, and he says, I won't believe it unless I touch it and feel it. And Jesus does this. He says to Thomas, put your finger here when he shows up to him. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. 
John is already battling against this. As a matter of fact, the verse that we have today should have been enough to kind of clinch this. The word became flesh. There is clearly, as I already said, the whole word docetism is based off of the ism of seeming to be flesh. John could have used that word here. It was a well-known Greek word. He could have used it, but he didn't use it. He said, the word became flesh. It wasn't an appearance. He was physical and he was real. In 1 John 4, 2 through 3, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Notice a couple of things about that. One, to confess that Jesus came in the flesh was from God. But to not confess that Jesus came in the flesh is to not even confess Jesus. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Listen, this isn't just sub-Christian. He says this is antichrist. To not understand who Jesus was, to not think through how it is that he came to this earth is not simply a malady. It is to toss the whole thing out. So Jesus must have had a real body, but that leads to our second heresy, which is that Jesus only seems to be human. Jesus only seems to be human. This comes from a man named Apollinarius, which is why it is called Apollinarianism. Now, Apollinarius knew that Jesus was indeed the divine word, but he argued that he wasn't fully human, that he sort of, if you'll forgive the phrase, put on the flesh suit or the meat suit that was the human body, but that meat suit didn't come fully equipped with the human brain. And so whatever it was that, those are my words, those are not Apollinarius's words, he didn't use words like that, but that's in essence what he did. So he, he thought that as the word became flesh, it literally just became flesh, that there was no real humanity behind it. Apollinarius stated it this way, he is not man, though like man, for he is not consubstantial with man in the most important element. Consubstantial, remember, substantial from substance, right? Meaning of human nature and con, meaning with us. So he is not with us in our human nature. In the most important way that you are human, that you have a human brain, that you have a human soul, he is not like you. All he has done was put on flesh. He put on this, this sort of outer garment, but he wasn't true and fully human. Now, as we look at our verse today, the word became flesh, we have to question, why, why can't John 1.14 be read this way? Why can't we agree with Apollinarius and say that when he says the word became flesh, that that's actually what it means? It just means that the word became the brain and the soul behind this sort of human body that walked and talked and spoke and felt and had emotions and hunger and thirst. The question becomes whether or not that's what flesh means here. There's a couple of reasons why we can't do this. The first is in the Gospel of John, we have reason to believe that flesh is nothing more than a metaphor anyway. So John doesn't use this word all that often. About 13 times in his entire Gospel, more than half of them, seven of them, come in one small block of text in John chapter 6, where John is teaching about manna that comes from heaven, and he's arguing that I am the manna that comes from heaven. And anyone who does not eat my flesh and drink my blood will not be with me. He doesn't know true life. 
In John 6, 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, it is clear from that passage, although our Catholic brothers would disagree with us, there is no doubt that it is clear that that is metaphorical. He doesn't mean that you actually eat the blood of or drink the blood of Christ and eat the flesh of Christ, but he's using flesh metaphorically there. But what's more, and that implies that he's using it somewhat metaphorically here, although not truly metaphorically, there might be more to it than that. But when we talk through things like this, it also helps to go to other books of the Bible. And the book of Hebrews clarifies this considerably. And listen to how close the book of Hebrews sounds to John 1.14 and Hebrews 2.14. The author of Hebrews writes, Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Right? So he took in and put upon himself flesh and blood. Now, there's that blood bit there, but at the same point in time, it sounds a lot like what John 1.14 says. But hopefully, Hebrews 2.17, not more than three verses later, explains what that phrase means. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In every single respect, not just he had to look like us, not just that he had to have a body like us, but in every respect, the word of God, the very thing that was God and was with God in the very beginning had to become like us in every single respect. In other words, he had to be not just flesh, but have the mind and the soul of a human being. After all, God cannot die, God cannot be tempted, so to withstand all that we go through in the world to offer a perfect sacrifice to God, one that would be acceptable to God, he needed to have a fully functioning human essence. Without that, he couldn't be our savior. So Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we need Jesus to have a human essence as well. To sum up, Gregory of Nanzianzen stated it this way, If anyone puts his trust in Jesus as a man without a human mind, the one who does so is wholly bereft of mind, and he is quite unworthy of salvation. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. If Jesus didn't become a full man, he can't be your substitute. And so we know that Apollinarius was a heretic. Calvin, in turning to what this word flesh means here then, sums it up by talking about not that he, he just put on something without a mind or a soul. It doesn't just refer to the body. It's not so much referring to the nature, but emphasizing what kind of nature it was. It was a frail nature. It was a, 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 a nature that was mortal. Calvin says this, The word flesh is not taken here for corrupt nature, which is what Paul sometimes uses it for, but for mortal man, though it marks disdainfully his frail and perishing nature as in these and similar passages, such as Psalm 97, 39, where he remembered that they were but flesh. And in Isaiah 46, all flesh is but grass. So what this emphasizes is not just that Jesus became human, 
but it's focusing on our frailty and our perishing nature that he took on our weaknesses when he became flesh. As we go on, though, we need to realize something of the danger that we're getting in. The word of God, as fully God, now needs to take on the essence of full humanity. For whatever reason, we are prone to think that this just happens without considering the difficulty of actually putting those two things together. The gulf between who God is and who man is is not something that is simply bridged over. It is infinite in its dimensions. God is measureless and we are measured in every way. God is timeless Yet each and every one of us had a beginning. As a matter of fact, human nature had a beginning. God is infinite, and we are all terribly finite. God is immaterial, and we are made of nothing but dust. God is life himself, and we are subject to death and decay. God is immutable. He, he never changes. But you can't help but change. Your whole life is nothing but change. You couldn't not change if you wanted to. Each moment, you get one step closer to your death. Each moment, you are getting older. Each moment, one more hair of mine falls out. This is the way of life. This is what we are like. We are never not changing, but God never changes. God is all-knowing, but we have a limited capacity for knowledge. How can God, who is infinite, become finite and still be God? How is God, who is timeless, take up a human body? How can God, who is never subject to change, become something? These are not easy issues. People tried to work this out. Nestorianism is named after a man named Nestorius, and he taught, as our third heresy says, that Jesus only seemed to be one person. Jesus only seemed to be one person. He taught that there was an essence of both humanity and divinity in Jesus, but that that person who walked around, the Jesus who walked around and healed people, seemed like he was one dude, but he wasn't one dude. He was two. He had a nature that was of God and a nature that was of human, but those two natures actually made two separate people. So there were two natures and two people sort of shoehorned into the one body. Okay? Now, you can see why that's really convenient and super helpful. Because if you've got a God and then you've got a man and you just kind of put them together like mustard and ketchup in one bottle, right? If you kind of put them together like that, you can, you can worry about that divide thing later. You can worry about that infinite gap and say, well, they're not actually the same people. They're two different people, and therefore, there is no gap to actually bridge, and, and there's one body sort of walking around. And so he only seemed to be one person. But this is incredibly hard, I would say impossible, to reconcile with any proper reading of John or the New Testament. There is absolutely no place in the New Testament that we ever read of a divine Jesus and a human Jesus. Instead, what we continually read about is Jesus, as one person. This is where grammar is incredibly helpful. Every single verb that is used of Jesus is a singular verb. John doesn't say, then Jesus, 
they went up, or then they healed, or they did this, or they did that. He never talks that way. It's always the singular person who talks. And what's more, Jesus never relates to his divinity. Remember, when we talk about persons, it's about how they relate to one another. Jesus never relates to himself. You never hear the man Jesus praying to himself as God. What you hear him doing is praying to his heavenly father, which again causes a huge amount of problems because why is Jesus, the man, talking to God as though he is his father when that person is not actually the son of the father? It is the divine person who is the son of the father, but he's divine. He doesn't need to pray. You can tell this gets fairly confusing fairly quick. And so because of that, people looked at this and said, well, this can't be true. And again, that small word became is very important. The word didn't associate closely with flesh. The word didn't come near to mankind. The word became flesh. When you become something, you are that thing. When you become an engineer, you are an engineer. Right? You, you, don't, you don't just associate with engineers because no one wants to do that anyways. You, you actually become an engineer, right? When you become a mother, you don't seem to be a mother. You don't you don't just hang out with moms and then you get to say that you're a mom. You actually become a mother. That is what becoming means. It means actually being that thing. And so the word actually becomes flesh. It doesn't just snuggle up to it. It doesn't get cozy with it. It actually becomes that thing. And this leads to the fourth heresy. And that is that Jesus only seemed to have two natures. Jesus only seemed to have two natures. This was named after a man called Eutychus. Poor Eutychus, monk from Constantinople. If you ever read about him, almost every single author who mentions him will mention that he was not the brightest, brightest bulb, okay? Uh, which is really unfortunate for him. What's worse is that he is condemned because of his dimness, that he didn't listen to others. Trying to get around this gap, he said, well, what actually happens is that as the word becomes flesh, there's something of what they called a tertium quid, a third thing. So he wasn't really truly God and he's not really truly human, but he's some sort of amalgam that they kind of came together and they mixed all up. And what you got was this Jesus who wasn't really human and he wasn't really God. He was something else. That's pretty problematic. He would, he would say that there were, that from two natures, he was only one nature. So he had a human nature and he had a divine nature, but when they came together, there was this sort of separate nature type thing that was neither human nor divine. The problem is, again, as far as John 1.14 goes, we don't have that. We have the word and we have flesh. He doesn't say the word became something distinct. He doesn't say that the word stopped being the word. He doesn't say the son stopped being the son. And he doesn't say that the humanity stopped being human and became something sort of more than human. But instead, he simply says the word became flesh. So what is the orthodox position? The orthodox position in talking about natures and in talking about people is simply this. Jesus Christ has two natures. He is fully God and he is fully man. So, he has all of the privileges, all of the responsibilities, all of the nature. Anything that makes God, God was found in Jesus. But he also has a human nature. Anything that makes you human, he has as well. Now that obviously does not include something like sin. 
You don't have to be a sinner in order to be human. However, Jesus was neither a sinner, but he was human. And so whatever it was that makes him human, whatever it is that makes us human, he has. Whatever it is that makes him God, he has. He has two natures, but he is one person. He is Jesus. There aren't two different people. He doesn't relate to himself. He is the God-man together in one person. He doesn't relate to himself, but he relates to other people as one person. When you talk to Jesus, you are talking to one man who is both in nature God and in nature man. See how much of this rings through as we read the Chalcedonian Creed. So you can flip over your handout. And on the back of that, there's the Chalcedonian Confession of 451. You'll notice how close this comes to the last confession that we had back in 381. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by their union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. You have two natures that are not mingled. You cannot separate them out. They are sewn together, if you would. That's not even a good terminology. There's so many bad terminologies that you can use and so many bad metaphors you can use. They are together in such a way that they don't bleed together, they don't mix one another up, but they are inseparably combined together in one person. So notice parts of what this position says, that he is truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body. Reasonable doesn't mean that it's it's logical. Reasonable means that it's true. He has a true human soul and a true human body. He is consubstantial with us. He shares in our nature. Whatever it is that makes us humans, he is human as well. He is one and the same, Christ, Son, Lord, and only begotten. He is not two people, but he is one person. The same one who is Christ, which probably refers to his humanity, is also Lord, which refers to his divinity. These two combine inconfusedly, so they don't mix together. Those natures don't, don't overlap and somehow become this sort of weird third amalgam between human and God. They don't change. Christ was made man, or the Son was made man. He doesn't get unmade from that. They're never going to be ripped apart. He exists today as the Son in heaven, as a man in heaven, although he is an immortal man. They are indivisible and inseparable. You, you can't parton them out or divide them. 
And the union in one person doesn't take away from the natures. Everything that is true of God is still true of God in Jesus. Everything that is true of man is still true of men in Jesus. And this is indeed a difficult doctrine to understand, and working through it is difficult. But I'm going to tell you, it is difficult but extraordinarily helpful to your faith. And against many, many preachers today, I would say that it is incredibly practical. And so as we finish, I'm going to take you through six different reasons why this is practical. I'm going to divide them up. I didn't have room to put it on the handout, which means you probably don't have room to write them down. But thanks be to the Lord, this will be recorded. So you can come back and you can do it again. So what do we lose if Jesus is not fully God? So one of the reasons why we need to think through and we need to talk about this stuff is because this is immensely practical. So many people don't want to talk about doctrine. They don't want to talk about heady stuff because what they really want is they want things that are practical. I'm telling you, this is incredibly practical for you. What do we lose if Jesus is not fully God? First, we lose the picture of God. Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the one who is the word who has come to us. He reveals God to us. What do we have if Jesus isn't fully God? We are told that God is mercy, that God is love, but we don't ever actually get to see God being mercy or love. We get to see the man Jesus being mercy and love. We actually don't know who, G who God is. We don't know anything about God. God can tell us that he's merciful, but he hasn't actually been merciful. He has sent Jesus to be merciful for us. That's not God being merciful. And that's not God being love. We lose the picture of God if Jesus is not fully God. Secondly, we lose our perfection before God. It was the fact that God existed in Jesus that allowed him to be the perfect sacrifice for us. Listen to how Paul puts this in Romans 8.3. For God has done, not the man Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, we don't want to split, them, split hairs here, but he is clearly referring to God. He is making it explicit that he is referring to God. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So the law can't save you. And even if we talk here about men not being fallen under the penalty of the law before he even begins, let's put him on neutral ground. What Paul is saying is your flesh is so weakened that you can't follow the law anyway. So what God has done is what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. It is because God sent his son, the eternal son, the word, the light to us, that he was able to condemn sin in the flesh. Third, we lose the prevalence of God. We lose the prevalence of God. God is said to be all in all. He is everywhere first and foremost. And we completely lose that if Jesus isn't God. This is why I can't get over people like Jehovah's Witnesses. They, they want to claim that Jesus is just a, a normal bloke, right? He, he literally goes up to the throne in Revelation 4 and 5, takes the will of God out of God's hand and stands there in front of God and man and all creation and receives worship for what he has done. That is not the work of a man. God will give his glory to none other. He says that many times throughout the Old Testament. I will give my glory to none other. Who is there besides me? There is no other God besides me. There is no one who is worthy of worship outside of God. Listen, we have sung and we have read two times over, three times over, if you include Bree's reading this morning, 
the passage from Philippians, which comes from that passage in Isaiah, where God is being the most emphatic that he possibly can, that there is no other God but me. And what does he have, what does Paul have Jesus doing? He has Jesus taking up the mantle of God. Before me, every tongue will bow and every knee will confess. That is taken directly out of Isaiah about the one true and living God with whom there is no one, no one in comparison. That belongs to God and God alone. You lose God's prevalence over all of creation if Jesus is nothing but a man. So then what do we lose if Jesus is not fully human? We lose the picture of faithfulness. Some friends, you are very prone, I'm sure, to wanting to uphold the deity of Christ given the nature of everything that goes on around us that wants to decry that Jesus is nothing more than a man and therefore we can shove him off to the side of history, of patriarchy, of whatever they want to do. You can, you can put him off to the side. We want to scream from the top of the buildings that Jesus is indeed divine because every Easter, every Christmas, all this junk is going to come up. That's fine. You should confess that. But if you lose the fact that he's fully human, you begin to lose the fact that the Gospels were written so that we could see how man was supposed to live. We are to imitate Christ. It is hard to know how we should imitate Christ if he's God. Because if he's God and he goes around being kind to everybody, I, I don't know that I can do that. But if Jesus is fully human and everything that is in him is in you, if the very essence of his humanity is the same essence that is in you, you have every reason to think that his kindness, his love, his mercy, his compassion can be yours as well. We lose that picture of faithfulness if we lose the fact that Jesus is fully human. We lose propitiation of God's wrath, secondly, or fifthly. We lose propitiation of God's wrath. That is, he doesn't take away God's wrath if he's not human. If he is not like you, he cannot save you. God's wrath was upon humans, so simply having God take that himself does not acquit us. It was the fact that Jesus became like us in every respect so that he could stand as a sacrifice for us to take all of God's wrath upon humanity, upon himself. If he's not human, there is no salvation for you. There's none. I just... How much more practical do you want to be? Go to, go to churches and listen to them talk to you about being a better parent, about being a better worker. You want to improve your prayer life. You want to feel better. You want to act better. You want to handle your money better. All, the, all that's good. All of it's worthless if you're condemned to hell. Doctrine matters. It's immensely practical. Last, we lose priestly intercession. If Jesus was God, there is no intercession for you. God doesn't need God to intercede for himself. Again, we get into this confusing reality where Jesus as God is interceding for God on your behalf. But as a human, like Moses Jesus can stand before God knowing our weakness, knowing our frailty, and intercede for us and plead for us. We need that. We need to know that Jesus is always there pleading for us, telling God to forgive us for our sins. 
we lose this. We lose this if Jesus wasn't human. So it is most practical to understand exactly what we mean when we confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We mean that he is God and man in one person. All of the nature of humanity, all the nature of God found in one person. So let us rightly confess. Yeah, but let's understand what it is that we're confessing. Peter got it right. He got the words right, but I kid you not, five verses later, Peter stood condemned, not because he confessed rightly, but because he didn't understand the words that came out of his mouth. We read from Matthew 16, verses 16 and on. Now we'll read from Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23, literally five verses later. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, who just had the most fantastic thing told to him by Jesus, took him aside and began to rebuke him. No, Peter. Saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. <laughs> no better line ever exists for why we ought to avoid talking about doctrine and avoid thinking about doctrine and instead talk only about those things that we see as practical. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan, because all you care about are the things of man and you don't care about the things of God. Friends, let us learn well what it means to call Jesus the Christ. Misunderstandings, lack of zeal for theology are not just issues with those who are learned and intellectual. They're not just things for other people to understand. They are things for us to understand because they pertain to our salvation. And you don't have to understand it fully. I'm not telling you you need to become a doctor of theology, but you at least need to be able to stand before God and confess and not deny. Even as John the Baptist has said, he confesses and he did not deny. You are to confess and not deny that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man in one person. These are not trifling things. They're the difference between the foundation of the church and the Antichrist. They're the difference between heaven and hell. This is the difference between everlasting joy and everlasting torment. So let us give praise to the God triune who didn't leave us where we were but took on human nature in the person, the singular person of Jesus Christ our Lord so that we might know him and glorify him forever. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for the day that you have given to us and I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful, Father, that I, although I had to think and use my brain for this, I did not have to use my ingenuity. I am grateful, Father, that we have many men who have come before and many women who have come before who have confessed and said precisely what I have said today. That we do not need to remake theology, but we can learn from that which has gone past. And most assuredly, Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that you have explained who you are, that you have tried to make clear the difficult things for us, so that we can not only rightly confess, but we can know and understand what it is we confess. May every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.